On this week's jubilant episode of New Tricks, we're joined by David Curtis Brignall, MBE, Business Advisor, Tourism and Hospitality at Tourism Reimagined. With the dulcet tones of Rod Stewart still ringing in our ears, we discuss the current catastrophic situation that folks attempting to enjoy some travel are experiencing, an update on the registration scheme for accommodation in England, and the role and importance of a DMO. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Tricks, which is the weekly podcast from New Dog PR. Um, we are you're, we're reveling in a jubilant weekend here in the UK, having having had four whole days of pageantry of Rod Stewart. I mean, four days of Rod Stewart is a lot. Of Rod Stewart. <laughs> That's a lot of Rod Stewart. Um, <laughs> a little fella as well. <laughs> um, yes, I think it's safe to say the whole country is has has enjoyed it and more more importantly in terms of who we are and why we're excited the hospitality industry has hopefully benefited from a huge surge in revenue mostly thanks to pims um well, so plan was two, two billion wasn't it two billion was the forecast amount of of consumption yep yeah, do you think we reached that based on your on your experience of being in north wales at the weekend yes um, yes, just from us alone. So, congratulations and many thanks indeed towards, on behalf of the industry. That's getting towards <laughs> the cost of filling a filling a car tank as well, isn't it? About two billion. Yes, yes, yes. exactly. Okay, yeah. I've yet to I've yet to hear from our driver for the weekend uh, what our petrol cost was. Um, but if it comes in during this um, podcast, then I recommend everyone covers their ears, <laughs> as we should have done at some point with Rod Stewart, probably. But that's well, yeah. yes. <laughs> And 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 the uh, and the music review this week comes from that the voice that you can hear, uh, David <laughs> Curtis Brignall, who is uh, of course MBE David Curtis Brignall, um, which is important and very relevant on this jubilee jubilee joy. Um, so David's our guest this week. He is to give him his full title: Business Advisor, Tourism and Hospitality at Tourism Reimagined. David, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I hope you're well and had a had a suitably festive weekend. Yes, thank you very much. I think it was a lovely jubbly, I think is the, the expression. <laughs> um, and that has only just come to mind. I didn't rehearse it, otherwise it would have been better. Um, There's your headline, though. There's your headline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, great. No, it's been a, it has been a lovely weekend to see everybody come together and, uh, and, and really, you know, give the, uh, uh, Her Majesty the thanks that she is really due because she's done a fantastic job and for tourism and hospitality, you know. Absolutely. Long may that reign. Tourism and hospitality, we enjoy. Um, so, David, we, we're genuinely thrilled. I'm very excited to um, that you're able to join us and we're able to have this conversation because it feels very relevant, not only with the immediate uh, situation and the Jubilee, but also um, on perhaps a slightly less positive note, the general chaos in the tourism industry. So a sector that we, um, uh, you know, hotels form part of the tourism industry and we need it to get back to to a fully functioning, smooth operation. Feels like we're quite away from that. Catherine, I think you experienced some travel delights this weekend. I did experience some travel delights. Um, getting into the into the UK, um, getting in was smooth enough. The flight was delayed coming in for obvious two-fro reasons. Getting out was more painful, significantly more painful. And of course, I got to enjoy some lovely passport queuing when I got back to France. 
which is always a pleasure. And I got to have my passport stamped again. Um, so that was lovely. Can't get enough of that. Um, and, and so that was usually rubbish. And as we know, that's not planning on changing anytime soon. We were told that the delays in this case at Bristol Airport were caused not by the flight, which we could see on a little flight tracker was was on at the airport. But the plane had been told to be far, far away from the terminal. And so we needed a bus and there were no bus drivers for the bus. So that was that, unfortunately for us. Um, and you can't, you know, shepherd a load of people across a runway because, you know, that way madness lies. Um, and it's lovely like that thing with those ducks that got, got crushed um, by that person a few weeks ago, one imagines. Um, and bad, bad PR. Um, and we'd like to avoid bad PR where possible. But um, but we were mostly in North Wales once we'd got there. And um, and the North Welsh were always very welcoming and we had a lovely time and it was sunny. Um, and then we went out in the evening to eat and the first place we went to, it was rather like being sort of Goldilocks. Um, <laughs> the first place we went to, couldn't. there were five of us, they couldn't accommodate us. Um, and the, the woman running the pub was, was um, um, spicy in her opinions. Um, and so we, we sort of backed away. Um, the second place we went to could do food, but there was an hour-long wait, um, which we were happy to do because they, they did do food. And it was very good for sales because we are in body weight and crisps while we were waiting. So, <laughs> so something, of a, something of, a, of a good tactic on their front. Um, so, yes, we did get to see in person the issues that are facing the sector at the moment. Um, we can see a massive, massive lack of staffing. There were signs up everywhere saying, please, please, please come and work for us. Um, and the hospitality that we did enjoy once we moved away from the women who couldn't accommodate. Bizarrely, she said, well, I can take three, but not five. So it's <laughs> who, who wanted to eat and what the process would be to decide who would get to eat that day. <laughs> and whether the two that weren't eating would then have to eat the three that were in some sort of strange Lord of the Flies type situation. A North Wales. Yeah, that's a possibility then, isn't it, Emily? <laughs> Yes, we'd already been sort of, you know, climbed up some mountain and and proven ourselves in in sort of, you know, rigorous ways. And of course, you're not terribly far away from Hereford and the SAS and that environment. So it's not really something you want to test, I don't think, after a difficult day, who is more capable of going out into the car park and stabbing two others um, just so they can get, um, you know, a toasted cheese sandwich. But no, it feels extreme. It does. So they're not beyond the realms of possibility. So, <laughs> so this holiday season <laughs> what's your view on matters of tourism chaos yeah I, I had very similar experience um i one of the new board members for visit isle of man so i've been going over there a few times since february and my last trip back into gatwick we landed at 10 30 and found there were only three buses operating for the whole north and south terminal and we were on a remote stand i'm saying remote it was practically hampshire um, and uh, you know it, it, it was it was chos, and it took quite a while to get off the um, the uh, plane to to get into the terminal. And because it was that time of night, I imagine some people sort of were missing trains. I only have you know I only had a quarter of an hour train journey to get home. But you know those people who'd got to go into London and beyond, you know, were probably um, probably uh, panicking a little bit. And I don't think it's going to get any better soon. Um, you know, there are staff shortages everywhere in the airports. You just see it. Um, and it, it's interesting that the government's kind of putting the blame on the airports and the airlines, but not mentioning anything about, you know, the really long delays in um, 
giving people security passes, you know, to sort of, you know, vet people. Um, and maybe if some of the, you know, civil servants were actually in the office and doing it, maybe it would be a bit quicker, but, you know, we can't have all this. Well, they're going to get rid of a load of civil servants, aren't they? It will help only, I think, if all of those um, unemployed civil servants become baggage handlers and bus drivers. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the plan. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Do you know, there, we could have uncovered the cunning plan. So, you know, um, if they vote to get rid of Boris, you know, now, maybe it's going to mess it all up. I don't know. Well, mercifully, by the time we're recording this, just to give it some context, we are recording this at 10am on a Monday. The vote will be 6 to 8pm this afternoon, this evening, won't it? So, but, but by the time this podcast goes to air, we'll know. So what I don't want to happen in any way is to influence no. The, no. how this vote turns. No. So if it does turn out that we've uncovered Boris's... <laughs> just his his reason for staying then i i'd hate i'd hate to be responsible for that but mercifully the timing is on our side we should yes. put ourselves in perda then immediately i exactly. think that's, that's the thing yes but, yes um, and, um, we, and, and to be fair it's if the bus had turned up and johnson was driving it i would still have <laughs> i'm not sure do you know where you're going yeah yeah <laughs> do you have yeah. a plan for where you're going Will we be getting there anytime soon? I can't say my trust would have been overwhelming at that point. And, and is he safe to drive with the hair in that sort of position? Yes. You know? no. Wow, yes. that's a good point. Yeah. And, you know, did he, has he even taken his test? Has he just been lying about this whole time? He's really failed, really failed five times. So I don't think bus driver is for him. I think it's too no. much responsibility. No, and and maybe he got somebody to take the test for him, and you know they they probably have the easiest test run in the country in Barnard Castle because of the yeah. large number of Specsavers branches and things like that. It's, it's it's amazing, isn't it? It's that you find it. It's it's only really it's one of those things, isn't it? That you, people talked about how we were going to do all this remote travelling during the pandemic, didn't mm. they? And we would be able to put on little glasses and be in Venice and that kind of thing. Unfortunately, that didn't didn't catch on because you really need to be somewhere to appreciate the sort of subtle nuances. I've never been to Barnard Castle. So it was a huge shock to me to learn there were so many spec savers because it's really something you can only appreciate when you go there. Um, you know, so you hear so much nice castle, but you don't hear about the, like the local things, the really interesting kind of, which is what you, what you pick up from travel, you know, unless you go, you don't know. I, I remember from my only trip there that it has a very nice museum. So I think it's called the Bose Museum, but, uh, I'm sure people were ringing with their in their hundreds to correct me if I'm wrong. But I mean, going back to the poor old airlines, you know, I mean, they've also got supply line issues. So if something breaks, you'll probably find that the part is made in some part of Eastern Europe that can't get, you know, drive through Ukraine at the moment. Um, and um, of course, they're having to fly round um, a bit further because of the changes to air corridors. So that means that crews are running out of time. So even if they've got the crew and they've got the airport, the, the, the aircraft on the, at the airport, they're told, sorry, guys, you know, you've run out of time, you've got to get off. Um, but I still don't quite understand how the airlines and tour operators got away with, with all of the cancellations we're seeing because, you know, there are stories about them selling far more seats on a plane than there are, you know, sorry, tickets than there are seats and this kind of thing. Um, and I think, too, you know, we forget about the destination. So every one of these flights that gets cancelled to, to foreign climbs, there's a destination waiting for these passengers to arrive. 
and I guess the hotels are going to get paid because you know the, the um, they've got a contract with the tour operator, but the local economy is going to suffer because they're not going to get the additional spend, are they? Of happy holidaymakers going around and buying their you know sort of hats and sun cream and food and drink, fridge magnets, yeah. Good fridge magnets. magnets, always a fridge magnet, but and. Um, David, you raise an absolutely critical point, um, and we wanted to talk about destinations and particularly DMOs, um, which actually I was going to say destination marketing organisations or is it destination management. Management, yeah. I mean, they used to be sort of referred to as marketing, but people, I think, got the got the um, right impression that they were actually about managing tourism rather than just marketing it because you can market it and it can be, you know, a little bit like um, some destinations that are over-tourism, over you know. I mean, that expression's come in. So management is a much better M than the marketing. Well, never let it be said, this podcast is not educational in every way. Um, and, and the reason uh, this piqued our interest was because at the recent uh, – the reason, yes, the reason was at the recent Short Stay Summit – uh, which you and I were both at and saying things out loud, you moderated a session. Um, uh, Nick Brooks Sykes from Marketing Manchester was one of the panellists and he made an interesting point um, that I think we would all do well to remember in that when folks are considering tourism and travel, really they start with a destination and then they start thinking about accommodation. And I think particularly folks who work in the accommodation part of the sector, including hoteliers, would do well to remember that. Um, certainly the whole time I have selected any uh, travel jaunts, it has been, I've started with the question, where would I like to go? And then where would, how can I stay there? If I don't indeed have a mate that lives there, um, then you have to default to buying accommodation. Um, so can we just talk a little bit about destination and the role of destination management organisations um, your views and experiences, please. I mean, going back to um, uh, about 20 years ago, when I was um, in uh, working for an international hotel chain, we were launching a new short break programme. Um, and I created a bit of a stir by putting out a brochure that was more like a travel magazine. So it had double page spreads, for example, on Manchester and Cardiff and Glasgow and maybe four pages on London. And then in a small box in the sort of bottom right-hand corner, it had details of our hotels um, and, you know, what they had and how you could book them. And the GMs were sort of a bit sort of sniffy because, or some of them, because they'd been used to having whole pages about their hotel and then a little box in the right-hand corner which said, oh, we've got these amazing attractions you can come and visit. And the answer was, you know, my simple answer was that, and I, I think I probably mentioned this to more than one GM, that nobody actually went to their hotel for the weekend, um, which they had to think about. You know, they went to Manchester or Cardiff or Glasgow, but not to spend the whole weekend in a hotel room or in a restaurant or in, in a, you know, 10 by 8 swimming pool. They went to the destination because they'd either got an event to attend or they'd got something, you know, ex explore and the attractions, the retail, the nightlife, whatever it was. So you actually had to sell the destination first and then come to encourage them to come and stay in your particular hotel. And my kind of philosophy with that brochure was that if you were the sort of really helpful hotel company that told people a lot about the destination, when they come to that sort of little point about, yeah, we're going to go, they're going to go, oh, who printed this brochure? Who, you know, who gave me this brochure? Oh, it was this friend, nice people in this um 
hotel chain. So we'll stay with them. And that, you know, it did actually work. There are obvious exceptions, you know, for there are dis- destination hotels. So, you know, one that comes to mind is pig hotels, you know, and I think people do actually go to pig hotels rather than spend the weekend, say, in Maythurst, which is a tiny little village near Chichester, you know. So you've got those. But generally speaking, when we're talking about destinations, it is worth remembering that the hotel is a part of the experience and not the experience. And therefore, you have a role to play in exciting people about the destination. And, you know, um, I think it was one of the things that um, I think, you know, I came to realise a little while ago was that we hotel people don't actually understand what DMOs do. And I don't actually believe that a lot of destination organisations really understand the industry. Now, I, I was lucky because I started off in a couple of destinations, then had nine years at the English Tourist Board, and then went into hotels, and then went back to destinations. And it was kind of on that return trip that I did realise, you know, that you were sort of one of a lone voice sometimes in understanding, you know, if you sort of said yield management, you got very strange looks, um, you know, suddenly why are we talking about farming, you know, and... Um, and I think this is true on both sides. And I was talking, we were talking about this um, at the Short Stay Summit. Um, and I really do think this is the case. And the destinations that I've worked in, you know, particularly recently with, with Kent and Hertfordshire and now the Isle of Man, um, I think, you know, they're, they're, the teams and the DMOs need to have that exposure. They, it's almost like they should be seconded to a hotel or an attraction for a month, you know, when they first start working, so that they really get an appreciation of the, in, 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 the, the issues that are, that are facing the operations. And it's until you do that, until you've actually worked in them, I don't think you, you can. Equally, I don't think that the um, operators in general appreciate what a good dmo can really do for them so they kind of think sort well no you know they're just a sort of fun little tourist board they can't really you know and maybe they've got this impression from meeting people they don't really understand their business so they can't be any help and they kind of shut the door um and i think too there's the other thing that's happened over you know recent times is the role of review sites when we're talking about how do people choose this destination and I think that they've sort of had um, obviously influence because you sort of get star rating for destinations. Um, and, you know, I think people are influenced by that. And I think we were talking about how people choose their accommodation at the summit. And I think people are using review sites, but I and a couple of the people that sort of I'm quite working quite closely with are just starting to wonder how much influence the review sites are going to continue to have. And there's two reasons for that. I think they lost a bit of credibility with all the sort of dodgy review stuff, you know. So, you know, do you really, um, do you really, you know, believe what you're, what you're reading, whether it's a hotel or a, or a vacuum cleaner? You know, if somebody's posted a good review, do you actually think, oh, no, I'm going to look for another one, you know? I'm just not going to take the word of that one. Um, and uh, so you, you've got that. But also, I think that um, they use them for second opinion. So I think people have decided they're going to go to, you know, um, Paris for the weekend. Um, so they've decided that. And then they start to look at the accommodation. And they'll find somewhere. And then they'll go to a review site and say, well, what, what are they saying about it? 
and just a bit of affirmation, a bit of confirmation about their choice. But then I think what's happening, and this is why I think that it's probably a bit more worrying for some of the review sites, is I don't know that they're all booking through those review sites. I think they then go back to the hotel company and book direct. And the two reasons for that are, um, I think the, the savvy traveller will think, hang on a minute, if the hotel's overbooked, I'm going to be the first one to get kicked out because I've booked through a site which isn't the hotel company. Um, and, the, you know, the other thing is, am I going to get a better rate if I book direct? Now, we know about, you know, price parity and everything like that. But, you know, I, I think that's how a lot of people are actually thinking. Will I get a better rate? Will I get kicked out? Or, you know, uh, is it the people who book direct and the loyalty club card members who will be in their hotel room while I'm trudging across the car park to another sort of budget hotel 14 miles outside the city? Or will I be in the room that looks out over the car park? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 We've all had that, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> we have all had that. Speak from experience. Next to the lift. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I think this might sort of segue nicely onto your point about um, sort of reviews and standards lead, does lead us on to how relevant, and I know this is a point that you wanted to talk about, um, how relevant the common standards we had. I was also in Wales, not with you, Catherine, sadly, I was in, I was in Cardiff um, this over the most of the jubilant weekend um and talk as it does in our household often turns to hotels and standards and whatnot um and but one of the points that you wanted to talk about david was the relevance or otherwise of the aa star rating the current tourist board rating standards um and they still are they are still in existence but perhaps not as fit for purpose as they once were yes what do they mean yeah Absolutely. Yeah, quite a long time ago, um, we did some research about um, what people's understanding was of the star ratings. And, you know, after a huge amount of um, research and focus groups and quantitative stuff, we discovered that people thought that four-star hotels were better than three-star, three-star were better than two-star, two-star. And also that four-star were more expensive than three, three were more expensive so it was just common bleeding sense, you know. So um, that that was that was interesting. The one thing at that time that the AA did was to introduce some percentages, which we thought was a brilliant idea because you could, you got a percentage score as well as a star rating. So you could then say that you know one hotel was four star seventy six percent, another one was four star but only sixty five percent. So the one with the higher score was a better hotel than than the one with the lower score. The only problem that the AA caused was that they actually only use ratings between 50 and 80% on the basis that if you got less than 50%, you shouldn't be in business. And if you got over 80%, you were a Red Star hotel. And people had to understand that Red Star was better than any other star. So they just confused it. And so people looked at the 78% hotel, four star, and thought, Blimey, that's only 78%. But actually, it wasn't it was 2% lower than the maximum they could get. So it was very confusing. And I think that hasn't changed. People are still confused by, you know, sort of all the different rating things that they see. It's been diluted by, as we were talking about, um, the review sites, you know, introducing their star ratings. They're based on absolutely, you know, nothing other than, you know, hits or, or 
you know, how many people have actually been there and sent in a review. But the AA stars go back, they're actually 110 years old this year. Um, and they weren't even based on hotels. They, they pinched the idea from French brandy. And it was a it was 100 years after that that the AA and then the RAC were running stars at that time as well, and the tourist boards, they all sort of were running slightly different um, versions of the star rating. So, you know, the qualification for, for a star was different in each of the organisations. So common standards, as we call them now, were the coming together of the AA, the RAC, and the English, Scottish, Welsh, Northern Ireland tourist boards to say, okay, let's make sure all of our stars are aligned. And so that's why we call them common standards. But that was kind of, you know, late 70s, early early 90s, and sorry, 80s. And, you know, they haven't really changed much. So we've now got things like boutique hotels and service departments and glamping and all this stuff, which, you know, just hasn't got a, doesn't get a look in with the star ratings, star ratings at all. Also, they're using kind of um, designators and criteria that's kind of meaningless to most travellers. You know, the, the, the business traveller 30 years ago might have been a little bit more interested in having two soft, you know, armchairs in their bedroom in order for it to be a four-star hotel. I don't know why, because business travellers usually stayed on their own. So, you know, why you had to have two big armchairs in your bedroom, I'm not sure. But they're more interested now, aren't they, about having a workspace, having Wi-Fi, having, you know, um, things that will help them to have, have a sort of a productive stay or a, <laughs> or a quiet stay um, while they're on business rather than, you know, whether there's a Gideon's Bible in the drawer or, you know, sort of two glasses for toothbrushes. So I think the thing is that there needs to be, um, a, you know, a much a, a review. There needs to be a review. And who's going to do it? Because, you know, the AA do not own common standards. The RSC is gone in the sense of star ratings. The tourist boards do not own common standards. So the industry really needs to get a grip and say we need to rewrite these standards. I mean, some, I mean, I mentioned the Isle of Man. They're actually, you know, sort of probably going to be ahead of everybody because, you know, they're, they're looking at um, slightly different uh, star rating kind of descriptors. And we're, we're doing some work on that um, over there at the moment. But, um, yeah, it just needs to sort of take into account what today's traveller is interested in. And that is sustainability as well. So, you know, the green creatures and everything. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be done, I think, and somebody needs to just take the lead and, and say, we're going to rewrite them, we're going to make them relevant to today's customer. Um, but, uh, you know, I haven't seen that happening yet. Um, and, go on. Can I, just just an observation, There, there's also a, a, a sort of a, a language mismatch as well, because from, from what I understand and do leap in if this is incorrect if if the sort of consumer facing categorization and language is one of two star three star four star but then in the sector we don't refer to that as categorization we're talking about mid-market upscale budget limited service there's two different categorizations aka languages aren't there and then somewhere in the middle is um team the staff who are who are there's there's a misalignment I think is where I'm going with this between 
what a hotel, how a hotel is categorized in the eyes of the team that work there, the consumer, and then the sector, whether that be the operator, the investor, the developer. Um, so it just feels a bit icky. I'm sure that's not the technical term, but it doesn't make sense because it's not, we're not all, there's not a common language that we're all talking. No. And, and then on top of that, you've got all the big brands who are trying to keep you in one family and then have all their brands within strata within that to compare to each other so you'll get say well I can't say (laughs) (laughs) lifestyle boutique and they're compared to each other not compared to anything outside the set aren't they so you'll you'll get some big operators who call their lowest level of brand economy but it's only economy compared to everything else and you would look at it and think well that's not economy compared to some places I could stay so and and mid market, you know, is that four star? Because that's not what a cus- oh, customer would think mid market means. I'm constantly is it's interesting because it's when people describe their brand to me and say it's whatever they think it is. Ninety eight percent of the time, I'm shocked because it's not what I would have thought that was. And there's some, some daft rules about food and beverage as well. You know, you have to have a restaurant. You know, if or you have to have two restaurants if you're going to be five star. But what if you're in the middle? You know, we we had we were operating hotels in five hotels in London. You know, in, um, Grosvenor Square and places. It's, you know, people didn't want necessarily to stay in the hotel to eat. So you were actually running a restaurant at a loss because you know you had to to maintain your star rating, which is bonkers, absolutely bonkers. And then. It reminds me of the, the Dickensian, you know, the sort of you can shoot a man at 10 paces in the city of London if you've got a hay bale in the back of your taxi and you can be a four-star hotel if you've got a trouser press, two two wine glasses and 12 restaurants. It's, there's, there's a parallel there somewhere. And, I mean, it's also, I mean, you were talking about the registration scheme that is is now coming back onto the agenda and something I've been banging on about for decades. You know, we are now looking, hopefully soon, at hearing from DCMS about when they're going to have a call for evidence, they call it, um, about the a mandatory registration scheme for accommodation in England. Um, and, you know, the, the industry is actually quite pro. The other session I ran at the Short Stay Summit was um, – it was, in fact, one that we ran at the AHC last year as well, similar, slightly different cast. But um, it was very, very well attended and very lively. And, you know, it, it appears that the industry is actually now thinking, you know, it would be pretty good to have a registration scheme for the same reason that the, the government is actually saying it would be good to have a, a registration scheme. Um, but again... I mean, is this going to include Airbnb, this registration? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all accommodation. So it would be... And that's one of the things, you know, I mean, it... it why do we need one? You know, in no particular order, it's consumer safety, rise in the sharing economy, and platforms such as Airbnb, other platforms are available, and the subsequent impact on local economy, uh, local communities. Another key issue is data. We just don't know what the supply is um, across the country. Um, and that doesn't help developers. I mean, when when I was with uh, Deputy CEO for Visit Kent um, a few years ago, I was constantly being told the county didn't have enough quality accommodation. And my answer was always the effect of how do we know, because we actually don't have a list of all the accommodation in the county, or sometimes I'd actually say prove it. Because when I was in hotel development, first thing you wanted to know about a new site was, you know, the size and performance of the local market. 
So in Kent, we, we actually commissioned some research on supply and demand, and we counted everything from glamping and homestays right through to star-rated hotels. And it meant that we could see where the hotspots were, where there was likely to be a shortage of accommodation. We then took the hotspots and talked to the local authorities to find out where there might be sites for a hotel, those that were likely to get planning consent. And then the final stage was to take a list of these sites and a map of the hotspots and obviously, you know, nice sort of pictures of Kent, all the data we collected, and we presented it to developers and hotel companies and, you know, the, the money people. And we actually launched that research at the AHC a few years ago. I don't you remember. And um, I'm, I am actually delighted to say that new hotel, hotels have, have been built or are in the pipeline in Kent as a result of that. But, you know, we were... This was one county doing it, you know, um, and so we just do not know what we've got, and that doesn't help anybody. Um, and you know, there's the other thing about registration is there needs to be some element of control over what accommodation is being offered to the consumer. It's not just sort of quality; it, it's about seeing people are protected. I mean, there's some great schemes. There's one called Safe, Clean and Legal, which is um, which is brilliant. It gives the customer reassurance that someone's asked the right questions, actually seen the paperwork for insurance, gas boilers, that kind of thing. And it gives the accommodation owner the assurance that they're trading safely, legally, and that they've been checked by professionals. But that is not a compulsory scheme, and that's what we need. Anyone can sell a room, you know. And the, during the pandemic, we saw Good to Go. You've heard of Good to Go, the Britain's game. Well, you know, that was <laughs> that was to sort of tell people accommodation and attractions were, and in inverted commas, safe. But it was widely criticised by which there was even a panorama programme about it because it was a tick box scheme where anybody could just go online and go, yeah, my place is okay. Um, and we saw some horrendous examples of where it wasn't. Which, uh, Travel Witch, which Travel did some checks and swabbing and it wasn't nice. I mean, you might want to read the articles, but not while you're eating. Visit England, say they, oh, we spot-checked, you know, um, a percentage. But that percentage was three. So it wasn't what I would call robust or, or no. boring. Um, so, you know, we, I'm, I'm just like Diana Ross, you know, I'm still waiting in terms of waiting for DCMS to sort of get this ball rolling. Uh, because they said, they told us last year, that um, yeah, we're going to we're going to get the, the you know discussion going with the um, industry, a consultation, and then they changed their mind and said they'd do a call for evidence because the call for evidence might unearth things other than um, registration that could be a solution. Which is the noise I think you can hear is a can being kicked <laughs> down the road. Does sound yeah. very much like. So that, in the yes. meantime, Scotland decided, yeah, we're going to have mandatory registration, and the way we're going to do it is we're going to give the to devolve it to the 32 local authorities. So they're going to have 32 schemes in Scotland, which is great if you're operating accommodation in more than one local authority area because you'll have to sort of learn two or three or four different ways of doing it. But we really need to sort of get a move on with it. And, you know, the data thing's important. Um, my, my kind of... Um, my fictional conversation as to why registration was um, was being sort of raised again is similar to the the thing about the DMO review that took place last year. Um, this was um, commissioned by DCMS. Um, Nick Dubois, now OBE as of Saturday, um, chairman of Visit England, was asked to lead a 
team on this. And I was one of the nine people who were the challenge group who kind of helped sift through the evidence and helped to put together the final report, or at least help Nick to edit it. And uh, that was um, because nobody understood DMOs. Nobody understood who they were, what they were, whatever. And I, I, I had this kind of, when people said, why do you think the review is taking place? I said, well, you know, at the beginning of um, the pandemic, uh, the government said they wanted to help all small businesses, and there's 200,000 small businesses in tourism and hospitality. And I imagined this conversation between Boris and Rishi, which was, okay, we want to help these people, so have you got a list of them? And Rishi would say, well, no, I haven't, but um, you know, we'll ask DCMS. And DCMS said, no, we haven't got a list of them. We'll ask Visit Britain. And Visit Britain said, no, 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 we don't know where they are or who they are, but we can ask the DMOs. And so they asked Visit England who the DMOs were, and they said, well, we don't really have a list of those. We think we know who they are, but um, we're not sure. And anyway, if you went to the DMOs, apart from Kent, probably at that time, and said, who are your small businesses? Now, where are they? What are they? They'd have said, you know, search me. We don't know. We only know about our members who pay us their fees. So, you know, we have this huge industry, which is, you know, what, third most important industry in, in the country, and yet we know so little about it. We do need, yeah, you raise a lot of valid points um, and uh, we need a lot more clarity. We need a lot more uh, information and detail for, for everything, for if not, you know, for the, for the investors, for the consumers, for every part, every player in this, in this. Um, from town turning up. Yes, exactly. Um, David, we're sort of hurtling towards um, the end of this glorious conversation. <laughs> and we need to ask you for your most memorable hotel experience before we ask you the five questions that we ask every okay. guest at the end of the podcast. So what is your most memorable hotel experience? Please? But, you know, I think this is this is the most difficult question because I, I struggle to think of one really sort of ex- exceptional experience that I'd say was memorable. I mean, there are lots of places that I'd go back to, fond memories. And there's a gorgeous hotel on the side of Lake Garda I'd go back to in a heartbeat. And, you know, I think it's just, it wasn't one thing, you know? I think it's the, it's probably also the mood that you're in when you're there as well. Um, So I think if I, if, if, if it was, Rather than memory, which which hotel would you go back to if we could if you could actually get through an airport today and and get a flight was going to take off and you know and didn't need to sort of have forty seven different certificates and you know jabs where would you go I'd actually probably go back there because it just was peaceful um, food was lovely although you know I'd say even then you know limited in the sense that we're pescatarian we you know veg and fish. So quite often you find that you by day two you've eaten both meals that you can eat off the main menu, you know. Um, which no, is no, everyone loves a red onion and goat cheese tart. You know that. Yeah, yeah. So I think you know as a as an ex, as a as an experience as a as a total trip, that's probably a place I'd go back to. That sounds marvellous. We concur. Um, right. Um, we're going to ask you the questions that we ask our guests at the end of the episode. So if you're sitting comfortably, I shall begin. When the shutters came up and I had the jabs in my arm, the first thing I did was? Um, probably not a lot different. I think hugging with grandchildren because we hadn't seen them for so long. You know, I think that was probably the first thing we did. Um, the best thing about the hotel sector is? 
I've I've only watched some of the previous episodes, so I'm not sure what everybody says or, or everybody, whether everybody says this, but I'm going to say people. I mean, I've worked with some horrors, but mainly it's been, it's been a privilege to work with some of the great people over the years and keep in touch with them. So, I mean, it might be corny, but I think it's the people. No, I think uh, it's 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 genuinely reflected across across the sector that that is that is a truism. The hotel sector would be significantly improved if if we could be confident of high standards across the whole estate. I think uh, there are still places operating that shouldn't be. And going back to registration, that will help with that. And I think they're letting down their neighbours and destinations. And, and what's Paul Slatter is saying un- under demolished, isn't it? Uh, yes, there's some some competition as to who who owns that. Oh, okay, he was the first person I heard it. say it a long time ago. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, so it tells you that it's been kicking around such a long time, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yet it's still in use. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the sorry, what the industry needs now is it needs a voice at the table. Um, I know we've got the tourism council. And I know it's naive to think you're going to get much more than lip service from government, but we need, we've got a tourism minister, but we need one who can actually push things through. As I said, you know, we're one of the largest industries in the country. So it's wrong to see it chucked into a corner of DCMS. Tourism doesn't even appear in the title of DCMS, does it? Unless I missed the T somewhere. And last year's tourism expenditure in DCMS was less than half percent of their budget. So that's forty-one million pounds, which sounds a lot, but out of a budget of nine point one billion, um, GVA is thirty percent of, of in tourism and hospitality is is thirty percent of the total GVA of creative industries, which I am told would be higher if they sorted out problems with methodology, which underreports our sector. So I think it's time we got out of DCMS and into Bayes, you know, business, energy, industrial strategy. Let's have a change of department. And let's have a change in the support we get from government for, you know, tourism and hospitality. Hear, hear. Wise words and quite sobering as well. Um, okay. And finally, I'd like to think we've learnt from this. When you say this. <laughs> um, so I appreciate that, yes, we, time has rolled along. Um, the pandemic. Okay. Right. Um, well, I, I'm not supposed – with the pandemic, I suppose it's um, – you know, we've we've always taken our. I think people have taken our industry for granted to a, you know a greater degree. I think going back to the very first thing we were talking about, um, if we were if we knew what today was going to be like two years ago, would airlines and airports have got rid of people? Would they have fired them? You know, made them redundant, or would they have properly furloughed them? Because I think the furlough scheme was intended to ensure that when we came out of this. We had the people and the skills and the knowledge that we had when we went into it. Um, I just think that we kind of messed that up, or rather some people messed that up by actually dumping a whole load of staff and expecting them to be sitting there at the end going, oh, jolly good, can I come back to work now? At least we must drive at Bristol Airport again. Yeah. Yes. Or maybe it's the government's fault for not having stringent enough employment laws. Yeah. Because it's been it's been the UK and the US, hasn't it, where they're most happy to treat people badly, where they've had these issues. So, and I think you know, is there we we have to just keep pressing our <laughs> we have to keep pressing our case. I mean, one of the things I learned, um, there's you know, over the last few years, is government doesn't like whingers. 
So if you're just a moaning mini, you know, they, they switch off. But if you can persist with data and fact-driven arguments and have a common message through organisations like Tourism Alliance, you know, who knows, we might get somewhere someday. And on that note, <laughs> on that optimistic <laughs> note, I think we should draw this conversation to a close. Um, David, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for your time. I think it was in extremely relevant and, um, yes, very of the of the moment, not only with your um, with your royal title, I give you, I say that <laughs> royal title, um, but yes, thank you for your insight no, into you. the tourism industry. It's mm. um, it's it's very much appreciated. Thank you, Catherine, and may you enjoy your return to Paris, your safe return to Paris, your long return to Paris. Thank Sorry much. about I enjoyed that. Enjoyed it very much. <laughs> um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Do share, like, subscribe, do all the things that you need to do, and join us again for the next episode. Bye bye. 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 Thank you. So that concludes our thoughts for this week. Thank you to everyone involved in creating this episode and providing something for your ears whilst walking the dog, washing the cat, chopping the veg, or however else you pass the time while podcasting. Please do review and subscribe if you get your ear entertainment via Apple, or follow new tricks if your ear delight comes from Spotify. These things make a difference, apparently. Until next time.